Late last week, I recorded an episode as a guest on Kalani Scarrett's podcast, Compounding Curiosity, that I thought you might get a kick out of. We talk tech crackdown, common prosperity, and she's goals. Towards the end of the show, I also get into why I started China Talk and lay out the philosophy underpinning the show. Hope you enjoy. And Shana uh, So the education crackdown, what's the go and what do you think the end goal is maybe? Sure. So I think before we get to the education sector in, in particular, it's important to look at what's kind of going on more broadly in China from a demographic as well as a like governing private sector governance perspective. So we've had a really, really dramatic few months, starting with uh, the the Ant Financial uh, IPO zapping and moving now through 2021 with, you know, all of these anti-monopoly rulings, um, the DD actions, and as you mentioned, the um, education, and then just, just two days ago, this whole gaming crackdown. So, um, you know, what is Beijing's real motivation here underlying all these policy moves? So yes, it is about party control. Um, There have been a lot of power centers, um, or just not even power centers, but just like ways in which the Chinese people are influenced through the private sector, which the Chinese government does not have as close a grasp on as they would like to. And kind of trends are developing, which are impacting people's lives, which the Chinese government either isn't happy with, or people in general aren't happy with, that the Chinese government wants to kind of address. So the sort of overall response to middle-class consumer frustration over various social and tech ailments is something that you can see as a bit of a a thread connecting what's going on with data privacy, with the gig economy workers, dealing with Meituan and Didi, and as you mentioned, the education um, education crackdown. So at the end of the day, the, the CCP's goal is to, you know, keep society stable and growing and kind of like increase China's power and like glory to, for lack of a better word. What is very important to do that is keeping middle-class city dwellers happy because that's where the revolution starts. Um, if there is ever going to be any movement against CCP rule, it's going to start from that sort of band of society. So addressing their sort of concerns and needs is, uh, you know, has really been front and center uh, for the party, you know, ever since uh, ever since Tiananmen, where, where it was very clear that there, um, you know, is a sort of all like a latent potential threat that can come from city-driven revolutions. Also, we have this um, broader push towards reorienting the sort of driving economic energy of the Chinese economy away from consumer and towards science and hard tech firms. And what that means is sort of reorienting talent, private capital, and the government backing, which, you know, gives tax credits and and, and free land and whatnot um, to firms uh, away from what has really been the growth story for mainland China for the past few decades and into something new. Now, why? The Chinese government is kind of right in that the consumer story is to a certain extent played out. Their, you know, urbanization, which was driving a lot of this, is 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 slowing down. The demographics are a serious issue, which China is going to be facing over the next, uh, o- o- over the coming decades. So in order to kind of keep 
productivity growing, China needs to be able to compete in sectors beyond the ones in which it is currently competitive. And, you know, that is where you see all of this, um, you know, emphasis by the Chinese government on semiconductors, on EVs, on solar, on biotech, these sort of new growth industries, which they're hoping are going to be able to bring, you know, waves of growth and employment uh, that are large enough to, um, you know, keep China on a growth trajectory to address its debt bubble and, you know, continue its climb up the up the global value chain. And uh, if everyone is kind of going into, uh, you know, if, 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 the, if the capital and talent is going into uh, sectors which don't necessarily have that growth trajectory in their future, that's not uh, ideal from from Beijing's perspective. So do you think this all ties in with the common prosperity goal they're going for? So the common prosperity goal is is, is a really interesting one. And I think so, you know, just just for some context, you know, it is a communist party. Right. So there is a uh, and in the Mao era, um, it was one of the most equal societies in the world, but equal by everyone being poor. Um, And in the past few decades, there have been there's been a dramatic increase in the Gini coefficient measuring, you know, the, the distribution of wealth in society. And so when you think about like addressing middle class angst, um, seeing, you know, outrageously rich people kind of drive, you know, society is not something that, you know, is something that has turned. I mean, you had Dung in the in the 80s. It's to say, you know, saying to get rich is glorious. And, you know, China was able in a in a you know somewhat miraculous way to uh, release the kind of potential energy of decades and decades of, of mismanagement into uh, an incredibly sort of dynamic capitalist society. However, um, you know, there are downsides to that. And there's also a, um, a, a real chance of the CCP overshooting the mark on this one in which you sort of take enough out of the private sector, which is better at allocating capital and driving productivity growth than the state sector, um, and putting them in in sort of too many boxes where the capital and energy ends up not going to to where it can drive the greatest sort of return. So it's it's a it's a dangerous game that Beijing is playing, and it is certainly at risk of overshooting. You know, CCP campaigns are very good at orienting the bureaucracy directionally, but aren't quite as strong at doing it, at at sort of gauging how far to go. Um, Because sort of once you let loose from a Chinese regulatory perspective, um, you know, everyone keeps running in that direction. And often uh, over the, you know, uh, 75 plus years of CCP rule, you've seen that uh, regulation often overshoots the the mark of what's of what's optimal from a from a societal perspective. So you know this this new push towards getting sort of the rich to contribute and and uh, you know not necessarily having uh, you know the country be um, dominated by the 0.01 percent is something that you know echoes a lot of the rhetoric which you see around the world. Right? It's like a relatively you know there's a way to look at it as kind of like a boring social democrat take on the way society is run but when you put that in the hands of a party which you know has far more levers at their uh, disposal than uh you know a, a democratic one in the 21st century there is a real risk of of overshooting in a way that um could be potentially dangerous to china's future economic growth is that probably the main challenge you think she faces when it's trying to overcome for the common prosperity is there any other risks do you think I mean, like, I think the biggest risk is, like, China is still really, really poor. They still have, like, hundreds of millions of people who make, you know, 
$100 a day. So I think sort of for the broader, um, you know, development of Chinese society, rural poverty needs to be addressed. And that is an enormous problem. You know, China within it contains like Zimbabwe levels of development. It contains Argentina levels of development and it contains Singapore levels of development and, you know, common prosperity, like the extent to which it refocuses policy on the sort of left behind and the, you know, undereducated, uh, I think is a, is a sort of positive thing for the long-term macroeconomic health of, of, of China. But, you know, if, if, if all it does is like, push rich people to like donate $50 million to a charity or something, as opposed to, you know, driving a real change in a, in a renewed focus on the, 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 the real, um, la development laggards, um, then it's not going to have the sort of effect that, uh, I guess I would like as someone who like, would like to see more people out of poverty, you know, from, from, from Xi's perspective, I think his incentives are a little different, right? He's trying to sort of like keep the boat afloat and, um, you know, signal to folks that, um, you know, the CCP is doing a good job and, and is, and is, you know, organizing society in a, in a way which, you know, which most, most people agree with. And I think from, from his perspective, you know, his first big push, uh, which is roughly analogous to what seems to be happening happening today was this uh, anti corruption action in the first few years of his um, uh, of his rule and and by and large, I think that came out quite well for him, both in being able to you know clear out opposition from the party as well as you know to a large extent clean up a lot of uh, sort of dirty dirty dealing um, which um, had really gotten out of hand by the early 2010s. And, you know, this is a different ball game in that he is trying to, you know, potentially radically increase the amount of control and direction that the party gives to the private sector. And it's much more, you know, the sort of like the, the, the kind of downside of the anti-corruption action is that uh, party members became much more sort of like entrepreneurial in, 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 in taking steps because they were worried that they would, they would be whacked for getting out of line. Um, when that happens in the private sector, growth slows and, um, you know, that can potentially rebound back pretty poorly on, uh, on Chinese society as a whole. So I think that's the kind of dynamic to watch is, um, you know, to what extent these sorts of, these sorts of reforms really end up, uh, harming the sort of like efficient allocation of talent and capital, um, which China needs if it wants to keep growing. Yeah, that's great. And I think this could obviously be a big stretch, but is there any parallels do you think that can be drawn from the great leap forward or the cultural revolution that maybe non-historians should be familiar with? Ooh, I mean, I don't want to go that far. Like, Great Leap Forward, 50 million people died. Culture Revolution, 5 million people died. You know, I think it's important to understand those periods in history in that I think, you know, when I'm talking about sort of the CCP overshooting, um, that is definitely something that happened in those two things. And there's a potential for, um, you know, both of those times, there were moments, uh, there were real moments in which it was, Mao was not in control. 
and uh you know he was was trying to sort of tamp things down but but it got kind of too crazy and 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 um you know china is a very large country and uh you know even nowadays when you have you know video conferencing and whatever like the the size of the bureaucracy means such that it's going to be um really difficult for uh for beijing to tune it in such a way where it doesn't overdo it so you know like the if it's if it's a sort of soak the rich thing um you know the, the way you could see it potentially playing out is every province is like okay we got to do this like soak the rich thing and you know what happened in the uh, and, and you know not not the great leap forward but for land reform the sort of first major um political action that the ccp did once it got in power is you know you had people who had like one cow because they had a cow as opposed to everyone else in the village that had chickens like lives get completely destroyed i'm not saying that like that is the way in which common prosperity is going to end up you know circa uh, you know, March 2022, but that sort of dynamic of everyone sort of working towards the direction that Beijing sets, especially when it's something like common prosperity, where there's a way in which, where you really are playing with fire and there's, it's a pretty straight, it, it doesn't take too many leaps to, to, to see how like, just like squeezing every rich person in China, regardless of sort of where they are on the socioeconomic ladder, if it's only relative ends up like really hurting the economic dynamism of a country is a is a dangerous thing and yeah i mean i would really recommend folks to check out china under mao a revolution derailed by andrew walder um if they're curious in in getting sort of a relatively brief like 350 page intro snapshot to um to that point in history because i really do i do think it's 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 important um and there are you know if if not in degree, certainly in kind, um, when you look at sort of Chinese governance and CCP governance problems in particular over the past um, over the past few decades, um, though I would not, I think sort of like the sort of one to one comparisons are are a little overdone because first and foremost, thankfully, no one is dying. Yeah, so that ties in perfectly for the next one. Is there anything that really annoys you when outsiders express their opinion on the CCP and the like? Like, is there any opinions that you think are just totally misguided, or what really grinds your gears? I guess. You know, like, there is this sort of latent thing in the U.S. where sort of anti-China gets, like, anti-CCP gets very quickly conflated with anti-China. Like, recently I was on a call with someone, and they were like, you know, if we don't handle this right, our grandkids might be speaking Chinese one day. And I was like, honestly, like, I think they should be speaking Chinese. Chinese is a great language. Like... I speak Chinese. I'm really happy I do. Um, so that sort of thing, I think, is a lot more common than it was five years ago before people were freaking out about this. And it's really unfortunate. And, you know, more than sort of like right wing folks comparing woke culture to the cultural revolution, um, I think is more insidious because it, it's it's outrageous to write off a billion people. And uh, the more that happens in sort of policymaking communities, the more the more stupid you get when you try to write those write those sorts of write those sorts of policies to respond to um, to respond to contemporary China. Yeah. So, like, imagine you're president of the U.S. How do you think that the U.S. should approach China, and more specifically the CCP, do you think? What would you go about? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a bumper sticker, to be honest. I think, like, 
I'm going to sort of take the Biden line in which, like, at the end of the day, uh, there are two things which really matter. First is, like, like America being functional. And second is the strength of its allies and its sort of network of allies. So first off, if, like, you know, even if China eclipses the U.S. from a, like, size perspective, if America is still sort of the world's most dynamic, technologically advanced economy, like, that bodes well going forward. And uh, if China sort of remains a bit of an island diplomatically and the U.S. can still call on, you know, the likes of, of Australia and, and Korea and, and Taiwan and, and Japan and the EU um, to sort of like do stuff with them when the going gets tough, then that sort of matters a lot more than the sort of one-to-one U.S.-China comparison. So I think, you know, that was probably the worst like the, 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 I mean, Trump was really bad, but, um, one, one of the sort of most dangerous long-term impacts that he had was telling all the allies to go fuck themselves. And, um, that is really unfortunate because you don't earn that trust back ever. I don't know, maybe like a decade or two of having normal governance in the U S which is really sort of scary and unfortunate because those are the real, those are the two real pillars of America, like making sure that like it still is able to, you know, do its thing and like influence the world in a nice way, which is like kind of a really weird thing to say two weeks after like leaving Afghanistan. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, that would be my sort of two load stars going forward. Yeah. Some great points to, come back to Xi Jinping and maybe compare him to his predecessors, Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin. Is there any, like, particularly in terms of China's role in the world, how do you think they differ? Maybe is Xi more aggressive, do you reckon? Or is it, you mentioned before, just trying to not rock the boat. Is it just more of a case of that, do you think? Yeah, I think Xi is a lot more confident. Um, and I think he has the right to be in that, uh, you know, China's growth story is a really incredible one. And a lot of people were betting on it ending and it hasn't and you know there have been a handful of uh chinese firms which have really which have made it to the technological frontier which is also an open question um up until you know 2013 2014 you know whether china can innovate whether chinese firms are really creative and you know that sort of enables the swagger which he has now carried to a degree which i think is counterproductive but is one that is you know to a certain extent uh you know justified you know it's not like a welter it's not like a bantamweight like walking into um walking into a heavyweight bout at this point the thinking about like how past chinese leaders have conceptualized their relationship to the world mao thought he was the you know head of a global revolution and wanted to be perceived as such and was like more aggressive than wanted to be like more hardcore than khrushchev because he wanted to, you know, be supporting like the most badass rebels and um, making sure that like he's causing the most mischief around the world. Um, after Mao, Deng thought that was ridiculous be, and justifiably so, given that China was like one of the poorest countries on the planet. And, um, you know, there has been a she uh, and sort of over the subsequent decades, like China's you know, kind of chilled out diplomatically and, um, you know, really focused on domestic sort of domestic economic reform. Uh, she is not Mao. He does not want to create world revolution. 
thankfully. Uh, however, at the same time, you know, he has, he does have like a, like an, an aggressive nationalist vision of China's place in the world and the sort of like respect that it should, um, engender in its relations abroad. And, um, that also kind of coupled with a very sort of facile view of diplomatic relationship building. Um, I don't think that she necessarily has internalized you know, what it took to build the alliance network that that the u.s has has created and how it's kind of like you know a few a few a few world wars and and uh you know a lot like a, a shared democratic tradition which which all builds that up and i think the kind of like um, you know, one of the corollaries of, of the Belt and Road Initiative was that, like, doing all this development would end up, um, you know, creating creating true allies for the Chinese, which, um, regardless of what you think about the economic implications of the Belt and Road, it certainly has not, you know, done done much besides maybe, like, winning one or two, like, random votes in the, in the General Assembly for things that, like, do not, like, really matter in the long run. And I think he also you know, sees the, the, the sort of wolf warrior dumb of, of the way she sees the world is also a domestic game in as much as it probably more a domestic game than it is a foreign, than it is an international game in that, uh, you know, part of showing that like China's made it and that like the CCP is legitimate and deserves to rule the country is to show that like, it won't be messed around with and like it can stand up strong to um to the uh sort of like bullying which china has um been subject to ever since you know 1840 and the opium wars or what have you um and uh you know that leads to this like loud um for for international ears like obnoxious aggressive stuff um happening in um you know happening with fighting with australia over exports and and in in the border with um uh, india um the one thing i will say is that like i think the the sort of two most counterproductive things that she has done from his international um stand from his international standing are are uh the the sort of crackdown and takeover of hong kong and uh you know the treatment of the uyghurs in in in, in xinjiang and both of those have are you know entirely driven by domestic political logic um without taking into account uh you know what the rest of the world thinks about what's um what, what's going on and what china considers to be its internal affairs but you know at the end of the day like those two um those two developments are really dramatic and shape the way um, a lot of folks view China now and will view China for, uh, you know, the, the, the duration, at, you know, at least the duration of she's of she's uh, of she's rule. And that's not something that can be undone, undone with, you know, building literal dams and bridges around the world. So going forward, I know this is how do you feel with Xi Power? Like, what are you positive about? What do you obviously there's a few common negatives and well known, but how do you feeling towards it? Do you reckon maybe? I sad. It's sad. It's really sad. Um, because it didn't have to be this way. Um, you know, there was a, there's definitely a sort of path that the CCP could have taken, um, which did not sort of lead to the, to the tightening, um, and the sort of, you know, uh, horrible things that have happened in Western China. Um, and that's really unfortunate, um, because a lot of, uh a lot of folks you know the, uh, again a billion people live in china and it's like they're the ones who are dealing with this 
with with the with, with the brunt of the of the tightening and you know i i don't think she is like of of all the outcomes i, I wouldn't say he is the worst possible one right you know there 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 are sort of like i guess positive attributes of his reign you know he has been able to um avert a, a financial crisis thus far um and i i think the sort of like you know broadly speaking growing an economy at six seven percent for another decade um when a billion people are benefiting from that is a is a positive thing for sure but i i think it's a fallacy to think that sort of it needed him and sort of his vision of the of the role that the state should play in society to deliver that sort of that economic growth and stability and it's going to be a real mess going forward because you know things don't end well when when leaders spend more than 10 years in power uh and what happens next after she is going to be made much more complicated than uh had china continued in its um in its path that it that it established after dung of having um you know semi-regular transitions of power and rule by the rule by a you know elite collective obviously it's hard to predict what might happen but how do you see the next transition of power like playing out does he have any inclination of what might happen or so i mean i have no idea um uh that said it is it is fun to speculate about the best um piece which you can link to in your so notes was written by uh half written by an aussie richard mcgregor uh along with jude blanchett uh, they had four possible scenarios. Uh, first, an orderly transition in 2022, which would be a real dark horse. Um, second, like, you know, she uh, setting up a retirement plan in 2027 and then retiring in 2020, 2032. Um, we could get a leadership challenge or a coup, or he could die or become incapacitated. I mean, he's not like, you know, the, the most svelte guy in the land. All, all of those have like a fair amount of like a lot of branching possibilities um that that flow out of them none of which i feel qualified to necessarily um comment on but all i can say is that like i find like orderly transition 2022 is like a you know vanishing possibility and you know given that he has broken the broken the mold and has not groomed a successor and doesn't seem to be particularly interested in doing that and like just given the sort of way the world has going and like more people being able think more leaders around the world like thinking they can you know make this work it makes me very pessimistic that will end up having something you know clean and clean and orderly and when you're talking about you know one sixth of the planet that's a dangerous uh, a very dangerous game to in situation to be in just quickly and more curious just from my point of view with your work to touch on maybe china's relationship with asean especially given that there's a common thought maybe within asean that maybe vietnam might become the next china and the like what do you think about china's relationship with them and how that goes forward preface i don't know uh, that said, what has happened over the course of uh, 2020 with respect to China and Australia is a real canary in the coal mine. In a coal mine, you know, we've had a decade plus of China on the one hand, you know, trying to integrate and say, you know, you guys are our favorite, you're in our backyard, um, and then you know this this sort of awkwardness with the South China Sea and like picking weird fights which don't you know, from a sort of like economic perspective seem all that justified with, you know, the Vietnams and Philippines and I guess Malaysia's two of the world. Um, but I feel like that narrative was kind of like, you could kind of put that out of sight and mind because it was like this thing happening in an ocean and, 
was not super impactful to anyone's daily life. Um, fast forward 2020 and you have these like pretty aggressive, pretty obnoxious sanctions, which on, 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 on Australian exports, which were like, you know, the only justification being like, we were pissed off that you guys asked for an investigation, uh, of what happened, uh, you know, of what the real story with COVID was. And you started talking about Hong Kong and Xinjiang. Um, I would, I would guess that that is as glaring a signal as any uh, to the rest of ASEAN and the rest of the world, frankly, of where the line is. And the line, I think, is drawn a lot tighter than a lot of democratic countries are comfortable with and will continue to be comfortable with going forward. So, you know, that means something different if you're talking about Vietnam versus um, Malaysia, right? Um uh, or Indonesia, but at the same time, uh, I would imagine it has it has in a lot of ASEAN capitals made folks a lot less comfortable about their future engagement with uh, with the PRC or with Xi's PRC in particular. To touch quickly on US US China tech, especially with your role now, I think you're doing much more coverage of it. What's the landscape looking like these days? Do you think? And is there anything as well that US can learn from China in their approach to tech and vice versa? Sorry, a bit of big question, but yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I think from a from a sort of like how how much is the U.S. going to crack down on Chinese technology? Like <laughs> China's doing the cracking down, man. Like Biden's such an aftershot thought at this point. If you're talking about Chinese tech firms, right? I mean, there was all this like there was this like worry in the investment community. I remember in like 2019, 2020. Oh well, like the U.S. delist Chinese firms because they'll like have these new accounting requirements. Um, no, Beijing's delisting them for them. So, you know, Marco Rubio and like all the right wingers are like super happy that like the Chinese firms are going to be leaving soon. Maybe, I guess, you know, not, not a development I predicted, but anyways, here we are, you know, the, the sort of question, uh, which drove a lot of, uh, Trump era tech policy of like, how much is the U S going to try to constrain Chinese access to uh, you know, the most advanced technology, like the semiconductor level stuff, like fancy biotech and, and AI. I think there's a lot more continuity than there is uh, discontinuity when you're looking at what Biden is doing. I think like he by and large accepts the premise that like China is like China's technological rise is a threat to the U.S. from an economic and national security perspective. And, you know, the U.S. has some pretty pretty nifty tools at its disposal to um, make it a little harder for Chinese firms to, to get to that technology frontier. And it's deploying them at a rather judicious way, both um, probably more driven by, like, human rights-y stuff um, than, uh, you know, we just want to screw over Chinese firms that are doing well because we don't want to, you know, fight a fair fight with them on the open market. Um, but you know, there've been a ton of entity listings and whatnot over the past, uh, uh, over the past nine months or so, which are, um, you know, de definitely like impacting leading, leading Chinese firms, um, to your second question of like, what should the U S and, you know, we can broad it out to like, you know, ASEAN, Europe in particular, learn from, um, learn from Chinese, Firms. I mean, I think like some of the things that are, you know, I, I, I spent like a year and a half in the Chinese like tech ecosystem and there were, it was really interesting because there are lots of aspects of it, 
which were aping the West. Like when I was at Didi, everyone was like, we want to, we want to run our company just like Facebook does. Um, so it, it is really interesting the ways in which this sort of, you know, there, there are global feedback loops to these sorts of things. Um, and you know, the entire, the entire Chinese uh, VC ecosystem is largely based off, um, based off the West. Like the, the China does have some unique wrinkles, these like government guidance funds, which, you know, were only, were only kicked off a few years ago. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure that the U S um, should be aping because like just the state is not as good at allocating capital as the private market. And I think, um, you know, once you, once you start putting lot, you know, hundreds of billions of, of, of government money into stuff, especially in a, um, you know, non-transparent, uh, society, you start getting suboptimal things happening with, with all that cash. Um, the one thing that I think the U.S. is starting to internalize is that, you know, you can sort of subsidize your way into a dominant global position in certain, um, in certain sectors in a way that, like, you know, may not be like Pareto optimal if like everyone's playing by the rules, um, but sort of screws you over if you're the country not playing that game. So, you know, this is like the sort of like straightforward one, which, which folks are probably familiar with is like Airbus and Boeing, where we're both the, both the EU and, and the U S we're like, we want to have a airline manufacturer and we will subsidize them. Even if it means that, even if it means that like we end up kind of losing a bit because we don't want this firm to die. Um, that this has happened, the, the, the Chinese government has been pretty strategic at a hand on, well, they've wasted a ton of money, um, but they have had some hits. Um, for instance, the, the, the solar sector received a fair amount of, uh, you know, uh, not a fair amount, a substantial amount of, 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 of subsidies, which were allocated in a smart, like relatively like market leaning way um, to the point that China makes 90%, 94, 5% of global, uh, global solar panels. So uh, I think the sort of like, and, and also the importance of manufacturing as the kind of baseline or through which a lot of, of sort of like soft expertise gets built up and sort of being able to like build up through the value chain and not just only doing the like top software stack is something which I think the, the rest of the world is starting to internalize um, probably for the better. Though, you know, there are dangers in... Um, spending government money this less smart ways and distorting it and you know if if a if a if an industry you know i would argue potentially solar is not something that where you like for like deep national security reasons like like uh you know airplane manufacturers need to have one in your borders like it should be okay if china can make this stuff cheaper and good and you know good enough for like the world to buy their solar panels from from like very well well run chinese firms what was your sort of goals for starting the podcast and what are the biggest things you've learned, I guess, along the way? Yeah. Uh, so I started the podcast when I was in grad school and uh, I didn't like my assignments and I was just reading on the side and I figured, oh, maybe these authors would talk to me. And shockingly, they did. That was really awesome. Everyone should start a podcast. Uh, you know, my response rate, even when I literally couldn't say I had one person listening to my show, was like 50 to 60% with folks, you know, who are you know, maybe not, maybe not HR McMaster or Jake Sullivan, but, you know, have written books and are like actual humans in the world. Um, so I think the, 
most rewarding thing for me has been uh not the friends I made along well the friends I made along the way but also the um the sort of knowledge you get and the amount to which if you pick a topic and do I'm, I'm like at 175 shows now um a, a, a ton of episodes about it the kind of compounding knowledge that you just absorb by osmosis because every time I do a show with someone um and it's their book I read their whole book because I don't want to feel like a jerk. And by reading someone's book and, you know, making like a three page outline of all the, you know, interesting quotes and things I want to say, like you remember that in a way where, um, you know, sort of half reading something, falling asleep at night um, or for class when a test and the test ends and you never think about it again. Uh, you don't. So I, you know, I started this four years ago. I know I knew nothing about China. I had never taken Mandarin before. Um, and and China talk has, you know, held and the sort of interviews I've done have like held my hand as I've, you know, learned stuff. And I don't think I'm like the smartest analyst out there, but I, you know, was able to talk to you for 45 minutes off the top of my head with no notes about these developments. I relatively cogently, I think, I hope. Um, so, um, so I, I would, I would like very much attribute that to having this show and building in the discipline of doing, of, of doing these interviews one or two times a week and, you know, doing the prep and doing the editing. So I sort of like, you know, heard it one or two extra times and, 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 and let all the sort of knowledge that my guests have sort of sink into my brain. So, um, you know, selfishly, just from a personal development perspective, it's been fantastic. And then I think it's like, it's incredibly rewarding knowing that um, I'm creating something which is, you know, I'm, I'm not making like, like TikTok dance videos. Like this is a complex, this is, I'm, I'm putting like very high level, like educational stuff out there to the world. And 7,000 people download it every week from like everywhere. And that's so gratifying to know that I am like doing something with my life which like people, um, you know, digest and enjoy and like adds to their lives. Um, so I, lastly, I mean, just from a, from a China specific perspective, like there, um, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's an incredibly understanding China is like one of the most important things that is happening intellectually today. It is a really fraught thing. It is a thing that a lot of people are doing irresponsibly and is a lot of, and, and is like, in is, and it's, and it's kind of upsetting and, you know, sad watching, uh, sort of like analysis of the country be like simplified and skewed and flattened in a way, which, uh, you know, is dangerous. Um, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily, I don't think like in my interviews, uh, I necessarily like give off a real political, uh, sort of opinion. You know, when you asked me like, what do you think about Xi in China? Like, I was like, oh, I don't. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to be objective here, but I, the one thing I will, you know, very strongly feel is that like doing objective analysis is important and making sure that like you are not sort of, you are, you are sort of starting from the facts and building up as opposed to like starting with a, Oh, I don't like China or like, Oh, China's great. And like going from there is bad. And I try to do that on my show and just like promote the, um, you know, if there is a worldview, it's that like trying to like you can approach, you can like try to un you maybe you can never like understand China, but you can like be on a path towards understanding China. Uh, the fact that you know that I can sort of like promote voices that I think are doing that in a in a responsible and thoughtful way, um, and be able to give them an audience they might not have otherwise is uh, is incredibly rewarding.
Yeah, far out. Jordan, that's a beautiful answer and I think probably a great way to wrap up. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, be sure to check out the website, compoundingpodcast.com. You can also connect with me on Twitter, at Scarrett Kalani. But until next time, have a good one.